So they say confession is good for the soul. When I was in high school, I never really finished an assignment when there was a reading assignment, ever. (laughs) By God's grace, I could listen to things and do well. Never opened up a history book, got a perfect score on the Constitution test. By God's grace. I did everything I could to not follow through. Cliff notes were my friend. Until an English teacher got wise and recognized that that was the only thing that I ever paid attention to. That last test did not go well. But if you're like me at all and you prefer the Cliff Notes version, make sure you have one of these. Okay, so this morning, if the only thing you pay attention to is the last song that we sang, come praise and glorify, that is the Cliff Notes version of this morning. Now, if you attend our care group, which is meeting here, you will fail the exam if that's all you pay attention to. <laughs> Seriously, we are embarking on a journey this morning um, where we're going to be walking through a letter from a pastor in the Middle East. He's written to a group of followers of Jesus. And in reading through this letter over and over and over, one learns that this pastor, his name is Paul, his desire is for the Christians that he's talking to, to understand and believe who they are in Christ. And and as a result of understanding and believing and internalizing who they are in Christ, Choosing to live and worship the person of Jesus. See, in my Bible, this letter to the Ephesians is four pages long. It's 155 verses in total. If you grab a cup of coffee, sit down to read the letter straight through, and if you do it aloud, which is longer than if you just read it, it might take you 20 minutes, maybe. But despite its brevity, this letter is absolutely dense in theological richness. I consider it the black hole of the Bible. (laughs) This year, as you've heard last week, we are committed to equipping you as saints to stand firm in a culture that is opposed to saints. Specifically, that you would stand firm on God's word, that you would stand firm in Christ, and you would stand firm with one another. And this morning, all three of those intentions are contained in these 14 verses. There's a reason we started this year here. See, according to numerous studies, 
Um, as many of you know, I have the privilege of helping lead a research team over at Focus on the Family, and we get a lot of information. The majority of self-identified Christians in modern America prefer to allow their own thoughts or their own experiences to determine how they live rather than God's word. Now, that's not something you would ever say publicly at church, right? Yeah, I, I know the Bible thing. But when it comes down to it, I actually prefer what I think. See, I believe that when asked, they respond that way because they have a superficial understanding of the gospel. See, the way the pastor describes the gospel in chapter 3 of Ephesians, it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. The very opposite of superficiality. For many, faith is simply a personal journey. It doesn't require belonging to a community of believers. But that's a problem. See, some scholars have suggested that Ephesians amplifies the importance of the body of Christ, the unity that Mike discussed more than any other letter in the New Testament. Because the letter articulates how we, the church, are vital in God's eternal purposes. And so we're starting this year with this book so that you might be equipped to stand firm on God's word in Christ with one another. My prayer since we decided to start here and this week has been that as we walk through this book together, our lives individually and corporate both are forever changed. See, in this letter, Paul doesn't correct a particular error in the church. And so this morning, give you a quick overview of Ephesians. Then we're going to jump into who we are in Christ. And then we're going to take a look at whom we worship as a result. See, there's no particular error as in other letters. As a result, many historians agree that this letter was kind of distributed and circulated across Asia Minor. Paul doesn't call out a particular false teacher. He doesn't promise to visit as he does other letters. Instead, he sends a letter that is ripe with grace-filled encouragement and hope to the church. And therefore, I believe this letter could be written to us right now here at Hope Chapel. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're weary or you're disheartened, this letter is for you. If you've been abandoned or you feel disconnected or isolated, then this letter is for you. Maybe you're here and you recognize that your life, the manner in which you walk, doesn't necessarily line up with God's moral design. Maybe you've been undisciplined or potentially rebellious in your walk. This letter is for you. Maybe the way you've been living out your faith is a bit lax. Or maybe you're unintentional. This letter is for you. And if you're not 
a follower of Jesus or you've said, hey, I, I like that guy, but I'm not willing to commit my life to that man. Well, my prayer would be that you spend some time in this letter and it might spark that desire because this letter is for you as well. See, as followers of Jesus, our minds need to better understand what God has done in Jesus Christ. And that results in our souls that desperately need to experience his glorious grace that we sang about this morning. See, this letter, we have a tangible example of why it's important to remind ourselves of the gospel This pastor Paul is writing to the Christian church and he spends half his time reminding them about the gospel. Most of us, I'm not going to make that generalization on you, myself, if I think I know something, prefer not to be reminded of the things I think I already know. Anyone here relate? Okay, good. So that means most of us. And yet, Paul spends three chapters saying, hey, I'm going to remind you. Because it's only when we understand and believe who we are, who we really, really are, that we can worship as God designed and intended us to do. So let's start in Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The pastor starts with this description of himself. And though it's not contained here, there's a background story that's really helpful to understand the rest of this letter. You need to understand Paul's history to understand. I could spend four weeks talking about that one phrase, but I won't. See, it's understood if you look at the ninth chapter of Acts... That Paul wrote this letter to the churches while he was in prison in Rome. He, in fact, had been there for two years. He's chained to a Roman soldier. And during this time, he's writing letters to the church to encourage them. It's while he was there that he wrote the letter Philemon to say, hey, bring Onesimus back into your household because he's going to become useful. And he writes this letter. But why is Paul in prison? Because of his faith in Jesus Christ. See, I sense as Paul's writing this letter, he's actually remembering his own conversion experience, right? He's in this prison attached to someone because he's a follower of Jesus. And he remembers that, you know, I was a religious leader. And I was devoted to persecuting Christians, followers of Jesus. I oversaw the killing and stoning of Christians. See, in that chapter of Acts I mentioned, we find that Paul was, this is what it says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, now that's just not like, hey, I don't like these people. So still breathing these threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem where they would stand trial and ultimately be executed. That's what Paul was doing. And as he's traveling to Damascus, this light from heaven erupts out of nowhere. It knocks him to the ground. And the Lord Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? Talk about a conversion story. As he's seeking to persecute followers of Jesus, Jesus addresses him personally and invites him to follow him. And from that point on, life changed for him. And now he finds himself in prison because he's now one of the guys he had been persecuting. So when he writes, by the will of God, I don't think it's the encounter he's recalling. But rather the change in his heart. See, he says, by the will of God, because God had to do the work. It clearly wasn't what he wanted. He wasn't seeking to lo the Lord to follow Jesus. He was chasing and pursuers, the followers of Jesus, to kill them. Because they infringed on everything he thought was right. And that's significant as we consider the content of the letter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So why Ephesus? Why write to Ephesus? Why not write to Damascus? Well, number one, Ephesus was near and dear to Paul's heart. Acts 19 indicates that Paul stayed there for three years. It says he spoke boldly in the synagogue for three months. And then it says, after the Jewish leaders refused to listen anymore and rejected the teaching, he then taught in the lecture halls of Tyrannus for two years every day. That's a whole lot of messages to prepare. And then in verse 22 of 19, it says, then he stayed there for a while longer. His pastoral stay in Ephesus was difficult for him. Acts 22 describes as is filled with tears and trials. 1 Corinthians 15 describes that time as facing wild beasts. Friends, pastorally, we have it easy here. We might have trials and tears, but I wouldn't say that leading y'all is facing wild beasts. Ornery, yes. Wild, not so much. And it's important for us to hear this because it means that when we're called to serve, it encourages us that the way, the life that he's called us to live is not always easy. 
if Taya leaves here thinking that Moldova is going to be easy, her parents and her friends have not done a good job of instructing her. Some of us might have warned her more than others. <laughs> and it also means that just because you're facing something hard and painful, it doesn't mean that you're not in God's will. See, my experience and what scripture tells me, because it's not my experience that determines truth, but rather God's truth that determines truth, is that when God calls us to do something, opposition is often around the corner. So why Ephesus? Or why else Ephesus? Yeah, it's near and dear to Paul's heart, but Ephesus was a port city. It served as the gateway to Asia, potentially at that time one of the top four or five largest cities in the world. And as a result, we learn from Acts 19 that it became the gateway of the gospel to all of Asia. Why? Because people came in and stuff went out and the gospel could be shared and it could be spread. And thirdly, materialism, sensuality, and immoral practices were pervasive throughout its culture. Well, that sure sounds familiar. In one of Ray Vanderlyn's videos as part of the That the World May Know series, Ray describes and highlights the worship, and get this, the worship of the emperor in Ephesus, describing the view of Caesar Augustus as savior. See, Caesar's birth was hailed as the beginning of good tidings to the world. Huh. They changed the calendar to coincide with his birth. And there's a statue that still remains today that shows Caesar Augustus with his foot on top of the world, effectively saying that he is a God over everything. So friends, when Christians in Ephesus said that Jesus is Lord, they were effectively saying Caesar is not. And in the middle of all of this are saints. See, there's a clear distinction between saints and the rest of the world. Saints actually cried out, Caesar is Lord. That was their chant. And here you have Christians calling out, Jesus is Lord. A clear distinction. In the Old Testament, we find God choosing a people to be, according to Exodus 19, my treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests, and a holy set-apart nation. And in the New Testament, followers of Jesus are set apart also as a holy or set apart nation. Now, this is important because we're not holy because of how we live. 
We're holy and set apart on account of his work. We are holy positionally because we are united in Christ, with Christ. It's our practice of personal holiness that proceeds from who we are positionally in Christ. And that's why understanding and remembering who we are in Christ is key. We are saints called to be faithful in Christ Jesus. Now think about it. If you have any knowledge of the way things played out, it's been seven or eight years since Paul had been with the church in Ephesus. The churches are made up of Jews and Gentiles. And as a result, it's likely, it's reasonable to assert, as Dr. Lyle taught us this morning, that their cultural differences could have led to a division between Jew and Gentile. Reasonable to assume that. That's what the world would expect, that cultural differences divide. And that's why Paul is so specific to instruct these saints that are different from the world to show how the gospel unites. This letter centers around our union with Christ and specifically being found in Christ more than any other letter. One theologian identified 36 instances alone in this letter. If something's repeated, it's important. Four pages, 36 times. Probably important. It's the heart of the Christian faith. And it's through our position in Christ that we have access to every spiritual blessing. And it can't be stressed enough. John MacArthur wrote this. If you are in Christ, then Christ's riches are your riches. His resources, your resources. His righteousness, your righteousness. His power, your power. His position, our position. Where he is, we are. What he has, We have. And once Paul's clarified who his intended audience is, the saints who are in Christ, he continues and says, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul immediately offers up a prayer that God would grant grace to those hearing the letter. And if it wasn't enough that in Christ is found as many times as it is, grace is also found 12 times. It's the overarching theme of the letter. It bookends the letter. So not only does he start by praying for grace and peace to come from God, he finishes the letter in chapter six to say, grace be to all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. It's beautiful. See, his prayer is that God would manifest himself by extending grace to his followers 
Grace is the theme of the, of the book. Being in Christ is the message. That's what makes saints different from the rest of the world. It's the reality of who we are. Throughout the letter, he writes... Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. 2 verses 5 and 6. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. 2.13. Once we were strangers and aliens, but now we're fellow citizens. So as a result of this radical transformation from what we once were to who we are. Remember, Paul's in prison. I once was this, but now I'm this. It's understandable and expected that how we live changes. And as we move into verse 3 through 14, and really through chapter 3, verse 21, the key to understanding and believing what Paul has to say is recognizing what you cannot see in the English is that the verb tenses of our position in Christ are primarily passive. You might be saying, I have no clue what that means. When a verb tense is passive, it describes something that's been done to us. Not something we acted to bring about. Using Paul's words specifically... It says, we've been chosen and adopted by the Father, verses 4 through 6. If you look at your little cheat sheet, it's in there. Verses 7 through 12 says, we've been redeemed by the Son. Yep, it's in there too. And verses 13 and 14 say that we've been sealed by the Spirit. And yeah, that one's in there too which Josh is why I asked for it to be included. (laughs) So thank you. Now, between here, end of verse 14, and the end of simply the second chapter of the letter, here's the passive things in addition to those that have been done to us. We've been given resurrection power. We've been given eyes to see Jesus' lordship. We've been brought from death to life by grace through faith in Christ. We've been raised and seated with him in the heavenly places. And we've been created for good works. That's a whole lot of things that we have that we didn't do anything to get. See, following Jesus is not about finding religion or becoming religious. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's not about happiness or financial prosperity. It's even not about becoming a new person. Following Jesus results from God's transformation of our hearts from being dead to being alive. And when God does this in us and to us, we become part of a new community. Paul is asked, why are you persecuting me? 
Paul's response is, Lord? Whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm persecuting these guys. And when face to face with this light that knocks him to the ground, his response is, I know who that is. And as a result of being called, Paul followed. It had been done to him. See, knowing this isn't enough. This same church that positionally are described as saints who are encouraged at the end of the letter with a clear admonition, this clear instruction to love the Lord Jesus with a love incorruptible, saying, do not let that change, right? Do not let that basically rot and waste away. Don't let the love die are then chastised for losing their love for Christ. Despite having Paul, right? This apostle lived with them for three years, loved them, instruct them, invest into them, modeling what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In Revelations 2, verses 1 through 7, the Spirit chastises them because they abandoned their first love. So how do we keep our love strong? Because guys, I'm not Paul. Bill's not Paul. Jason's not Paul. Wolf's not Paul. None of y'all are Paul. How do we keep our love strong? Well, reading through this letter should help. I've challenged myself in that I've committed to reading this letter each week, front to back, until we're done studying it, once a week. My prayer is that my heart might yearn for Christ more, that I might understand his love more, I might believe who I am in him, and that my life would reflect him more and more. That's the challenge to myself. If any of y'all want to join me, let me know. But I know I need it. See, when they say that this letter was circulated among the churches... Do you think it was, okay, Nate read it and passed it on? No, 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 I sense that it was read, and it was reread, and it was reread. And then we know that there are copies upon copies upon copies of this because it was an encouragement. And have you all taken any book in the Bible and written it from start to finish? Because if you haven't, do it. You remember it much better. That was the way it worked. I would imagine that, you know, some people try, yeah, you know, that guy Paul, he said this. And somebody's going, no, no, that's not what he said. I've got it written right here. And so if we understand who we are in Christ... Whom we worship becomes clear. So we have this cultural context for Paul's letter to the church in Asia. Whom do we worship? Well, number one, we worship because we were made for praise. That's why we worship. 
It's not a matter of if we will worship, but rather what or whom will worship. Just look around you. You'll find praise being expressed. Concert attendees scream as favorite musicians show up on stage. If you listen to a live uh, track on Spotify, it'll have a little parenthetical that says featured, and then they have a different artist. And nine out of 10 times when that artist shows up, it's unexpected. And what happens? You hear the crowd go wild because somebody stepped on stage. When you're listening, you have no idea what just happened until they start singing. And then you can tell who it is because of the sound of their voice. Last weekend, it became a heyday here in Colorado. Anybody know why? Because the Broncos game shifted from Sunday to Saturday. People were willing to adjust their schedules to get there and people were dismayed because they couldn't get there. It's a form of worship. I'm amazed that there are people I know who can barely make it to work on time, find no problem waking up and being in the Lowe's parking lot before they open because they have a project to start that day. Can't make it to philipleship at 640, but 6 o'clock on a Saturday, huh? <laughs> Fans of Dutch Brothers promoting the superior value of drinking their coffee over Starbucks are all over the place. <laughs> yep, it is worship. <laughs> See, as humans, we have no problem expressing praise in both word and deed. But unfortunately, many things can become functioning idols. We take good biblical things like treasure and food and coffee and relationships and sex, and we substitute them for the creator. I was convicted yesterday. I read this. Imagine what would happen if followers of Jesus spent as much time reaching for and opening their Bibles as they did their cell phones. Ooh, that hurts. If you're in the Apple environment, it'll tell you how many times you picked the thing up and what was the first thing you looked at. Friends, take a look. See, this year we're calling the body to stand firm on the word of God. We're called to worship the God of the Bible, not the God we fabricated in our minds. And friends, that only happens if you open this up and spend time in it. Now, the remainder of the passage today is a clear, concise, amazing description of the God we are called to worship. In the Greek, it is one long, complex, breathtaking, and extraordinary sentence that exudes God centered worship. One sentence. One Greek scholar said that this is, in quotes, the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that he had ever found in the Greek language. My Greek isn't great, so anything in the Greek language is monstrous and complex, but I'll trust him. 
Follow along with me as I read this sentence. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That means us, friends. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. See, it seems Paul can't help himself. As he sits in prison and reflects on his life, after considering who he is, an apostle on account of God's work, right? By the will of God, praise emanates from the man. Is that true for you? See, if the only thing you take away this morning is that when you stop and pause and consider the difference between who you were and who you are should result in praise, then to him be the glory. Friends, this takes time. Fifteen years ago, almost to the Sunday, I taught this passage. And sadly, I never understood Paul's heart. Theologically, I could walk you through the entire passage. 
but God had to wreck me. God had to do a work on my own heart to see Paul's heart. See, this passage brings to clarity the work of God in Jesus Christ. And that's the knowledge part. But this passage also calls us to praise God for it. And that's the heart piece. And unfortunately, on account of its mention of election and predestination, there's much debate around this passage. And while the discussion about these fundamental truths are not bad in themselves, they easily overshadow the bigger picture of the passage. Because friends, it's not about election. It's not about predestination. It's about God doing the miraculous. See, I believe that God through Paul intentionally inserts a display of praise in verse 3. Paul erupts and says, blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ. And then he goes on. Like this is just praise and glory to God erupting from the man. And it ends as he brings it around with praise. Friends, this passage is about the praise that is due our Lord, not election. See, instead of focusing on the concepts of election and predestination, God works to direct the attention of our minds and our hearts to see and savor the spirit of the text. It's what I missed a decade and a half ago. Because it's actually in the context of the spirit of the text that the concept of election actually makes sense. The blessing described here are the work of the Trinity. We find an emphasis on the work of God the Father in 3 through 6, the work of God the Son in 7 through 12, and the work of God the Spirit in 13 to 14. Paul uncovers how these blessings are found only in Christ, 11 times to be exact. He's describing how saints are separate from the world. And so if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you haven't surrendered your life to him, if you haven't trusted him to forgive your sins, then what is found here should make you wish that you knew him personally. Because this is amazing. In these 11 verses, Paul emphasizes that our salvation is not about giving us good things or about making us feel good. Jesus saves his people to the praise of his glorious grace and to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. So why did God bless us with salvation? Friends, is it so that we can actually have our best life as we live here on earth or that we will be free from illness or pain or hardship? No, 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 and no. He saves us 
for his glory. Not our good, not our happiness, not our joy. Those are all good things, but it's not why. It's for his glory. And as Paul praises God for the work of God done in Jesus, Paul places a spotlight on the eternal extent of our salvation. In verse 4, Paul boasts that this started before the foundation of the world. And he ends it that in the fullness of time, he's going to unite all things in him, things on heaven and in earth. Right? So he's dealing with time. He's dealing with space. He's dealing with everything. It's eternal. And so if Paul, who's writing this after spending two years in prison chained to a Roman soldier, responds by praising the triune God, then regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, praise can emanate as you consider the Lord Jesus. Though Paul's body was in shackles and chains, his mind and his heart were free to contemplate heaven and praise erupted. That's freedom, friends. So I want to finish our time this morning by looking closely at the three aspects of our salvation, the triune aspects of salvation that Paul highlights in this passage. Because they should serve to cause us to praise him as well. So first, we've been adopted by the Father. Verses 3 through 6. Now sadly, when some hear that we've been chosen and adopted, instead of erupting with praise and worship and awe as Paul did, they quickly tense up and defiantly object that God wouldn't force these blessings on anyone. It's safe to say that's illogical, Dr. Lyle. I'm just checking. Okay, just making sure. I'm trying to learn. (laughs) And yet we stand firm on God's word. In the Bible, we repeatedly see how God chooses. Think about it. God chose to create the world. If we understand and believe that God is self-existent as he is, then he didn't need to create anything. So that means in creating something, he chose to do it. And the only reason he would do it is to glorify himself. In Genesis 12, we find God choosing Abraham as the man through whom God would bless his people. God chose Israel in Deuteronomy to be a light to other nations. In John's gospel, we see how Jesus chose and appointed 12 disciples to go and bear fruit. These guys didn't cast lots to be with Jesus. Jesus chose them. In the first of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth, he articulates that God chose what is insignificant and despised in the world so that no one may boast of their own effort. And in more than a handful of other New Testament books, we find that God chose certain people to be saved. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't readily and wholeheartedly admit that there is a mystery around God's election of saints. Yet, this passage indicates that the process occurred 
before the foundation of the world. That's a long time ago. It speaks of an eternal and a secret purpose, things I, you, cannot fully grasp. Verses 5 and 10. I'm not making that up. It says these things occur according to what? Verse 11, the counsel of his will. Not our experience, not our own thoughts, his will. And while it doesn't make sense, it's a mystery. Allowing God's word to direct our thoughts should cause us to humbly recognize that we are graciously adopted in love. Verses 4 to 5. According to his sovereign purpose, verses 5, 9, 10, and 11 that we would be set apart as the family of God. So somehow, God chose people. He chose to adopt particular people to be holy, set apart as he is holy. So why is adoption important? Well, As adopted sons and daughters, we have all the privileges and rights that come with being a child of the adoptor. This word adoption here actually only happens five times in the entire New Testament. And while there's a vertical element about being adopted by God and being a child of the Father, simultaneously, concurrently, there's also a horizontal aspect that means we've been adopted, we are called to stand with one another. It infers that we stand firm as brothers and sisters with other believers in Jesus. And it's this life that we live as family, right? As a family of believers, albeit imperfect, albeit leaning towards our sinful passions with one another, it's in that living life together that we have opportunities to model what Christ-like love is in ways that serve as the greatest apologetic to a watching world. Now, as his children, we're called to eventually work in the family business. See, at earthly family business, we say, hey, I'm not sure if my kids are going to pick this up. Jason's hoping that soon the kids will pick up the farm because he's ready to retire. (laughs) And he just started. (laughs) But it's not a guarantee When we're adopted by God the Father, we are called into the family business and we have no other option. Because we recognize the joy that it is to be in the family business. I'm not sure Jason could convince me that taking care of a camel is joyful. (laughs) 
<laughs> I have no desire to. <laughs> See, we're instructed to carry out God's mission in a fallen world. We are adopted by the Father for a purpose, and that's to make Christ known as we share the truth and as we live out our faith. And it's demonstrated by our praise for who he is. Secondly, we should praise God for the reality of what this passage reveals, that we are redeemed by the Son, verses 7 through 10. See, this idea of redemption signifies freedom from bondage or imprisonment. It brings to mind the idea of when the Israelites were redeemed from the Egyptians. They were freed from the bondage of being slaves. And as a result, what did they do? In Exodus 15, we find that they sang a salvation song. That was natural. As a result of being redeemed, as a result of being rescued, they emanated praise. Paul articulates this idea potentially even more clearly in Colossians 1, writing, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. So the question is, what is redemption? It's the forgiveness of sins. Our rescue from the domain of darkness, our redemption from our sins had a cost. Paul says it required Jesus' blood. The sin that we inherited from the first man, Adam, left us with a debt that could only be satisfied by death. But Jesus, God's only son, stepped in, into time and took on flesh so that he could live a perfectly obedient life submitted to the will of the Father. But it wasn't just that he lived a perfectly obedient life. It was because he was born of a virgin and therefore did not inherit sin. He faced every temptation. He was without sin, so therefore he didn't deserve to die. And yet, he chose to lay down his life for those who mocked, and scorned. It's in Christ where we find forgiveness. Our debt is paid in full by the precious blood of Jesus. And because we've been forgiven and redeemed by the Son, we should pour out our hearts in adoration to Him. Friends, you and I will never experience death the way those not in Christ experience it. It's not because we're good people. It's not because of the things we do. It says it's according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. We're the recipients of God's unfathomable goodness and kindness and grace. Friends, he's given us way more than we could ever imagine. And not only have we been given way more than we could ever imagine, 
he's withheld the penalty that we actually deserve to experience. That's kindness. But wait, there's more. See, it's not enough that we've been adopted by the Father. It's not enough that we've been rescued and redeemed by the Son. Lastly, in this passage, this, it, we, we find that we are sealed with the Spirit. Verses 11 through 14. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee of our hope. This phrase here, the guarantee of an inheritance or obtained an inheritance is a single compound word. It indicates something in the future that is sure to happen. It's not wishful thinking, but rather a future promise. When my kids ask me, hey, are we going snowboarding on Monday? And I say, yes. It's not that. Because if Monday morning comes and I go click on the car, we're not going anywhere. It's not sure that it's going to happen. I would like it to happen. It'd be wonderful to spend time in the mountains tomorrow. But it's not a sure guarantee. But this is a compound word that has an assurance. See, as God's adopted children, we receive an indescribable and glorious inheritance. Not so we would enjoy life now. It's actually so we would glorify God. That's why we receive the inheritance. The Spirit guarantees our hope. From God's divine perspective, everything we experience here is according to God's sovereign purposes. And yet from a human perspective, here's the mystery. It says at some point, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, Paul describes saints here as those who had placed their hope in a Messiah. The mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, our responsibility is on full display. And given the fact that they're contained in the same passage, these ideas are not in contradiction with one another. They're both here. God cannot contradict himself. What God says is true. Therefore, this is true. Now, one of the things we ask you to do, our desire as you're able to do, is to stand firm on God's word. Some, at some point in your life, will say, there's no way that's true. No, it is true because God said it's true. And as a result of this truism, this trueness, this happening, it says we are sealed. 
A seal is not an animal. Okay? No, that's not what it's talking about. A seal is a mark of ownership. If Jason ends up with a lot of cattle, he may end up branding them as a mark of ownership. He might brand them now. That I might like to do. It'd be fun. <laughs> Just not taking care of a camel. <laughs> Some of you who go, I don't like the whole idea of branding. Yeah, it's like beyond me. Remember when your mother wrote your name on the inside of your underwear when you went to camp. It's a mark of ownership. Her hope was that your clothes would make it back home. Typically, when I get a new book, I, write, I place my name on the inside cover in the top right corner to know it's mine. I wish I had like candle and wax that I could heat and put a stamp on there. Like that would be really, wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would be cool. See, countless times, somebody's called me up 15 years, 10 years after I gave them a book and said, hey, I was cleaning out my office and I found this, it's yours. Why? Because it had a seal with my name on it. Generally, it means that they never read the book, but that's beside the point. Those seals are external. You can see them. They're visible. Here's the difference. The seal here being sealed with the spirit is internal, right? We don't have a mark. Not like the phylacteries that the Pharisees used to wear. So, hey, hey, I know who you are. That's not what it is. It's a seal on our hearts, but it's not only internal, it's eternal. It can never be taken away. God places his seal on our hearts with the spirit permanently. Later in Ephesians and throughout Paul's letter to the Romans, the apostle describes the importance of out, the outworking of this seal. We don't have time to get there this morning. We'll get there later. But what's important to note is that the seal is crucial because it shows that we've not been adopted and then abandoned. See, Jesus specifically affirmed the importance of the spirit saying, it's captured in John's gospel. He says, hey guys, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sins and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's coming is the guarantee of our promised inheritance. Now, when it says it's the guarantee of our inheritance, Look right after it. This is in verse 14. Until we acquire possession of it. See, sometimes when we think of guarantee, we think of it as a promise. That's not what it's talking about here. This guarantee is like the down payment on a house. It's the first step that's given by God that says, he, she is mine. Will God ever default on that payment? No. 
which is why Paul can say with confidence until we acquire possession of it and not if we acquire possession of it. See, there's some today that say that unless you have an outward sign of the Spirit sealing you, you're not a follower of Jesus. Somebody says that to you? Go right here. Because that's not what it says. It's an internal seal that happens, planned before the foundation of the world, brought about through Christ, and it's until we acquire possession because it's already been made. Nothing else is needed. Nothing. Our being sealed with the Spirit honestly is merely a taste of what is to come. Look at verse 14. In him, starting in 13. Now remember, how many sentences is this, is this in the Greek? One, there's a period here. <laughs> it misses it. It's the same thought. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it so that you have your best life. That's not what it says? No. So you're free from sickness? So you won't experience financial hardship? So your best friend or your husband or your father or your mother won't be taken from you? Is that what it says? No. No, it says, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's all that's left for us to do is praise his glory. That's it. That's it. Now, as we walk in obedience, it's to the praise of his glory. As we turn from sin and turn to him and continue to repent the things we do, that's to the praise of his glory. But it's not the requirement to receive that. Why? Because we've been sealed with the spirit. Done. When Christ said it is finished on the cross, he meant it's finished. There's nothing left for us to do but to praise him. God the Father adopted you if you were a follower of Jesus. He adopted you. He recognized the God of this world. Your father, the devil, was destroying you. And he said, I want you. I'm going to redeem you from that. And you are now mine. 
He redeemed you by his son. And he says, I'm going to make sure you understand this. I'm going to seal this thing forever. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you forever. So when Paul considers from prison, I was a man who hated these individuals. They stood against everything I believe, everything I worked for, everything I held dear. They oppose me and my righteousness. And here I am in prison because I'm now one of them. He can't help but erupt in praise. So let us worship the triune God because that's what we were made for. It's then and only then when we humbly and unashamedly praise our Lord that our hearts find satisfaction. Let's pray and respond in praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, blessed be you who adopted us, who redeemed us, who sealed us, who's made known to us the mystery of your will, who's granted an inheritance that is beyond our comprehension. Lord, let us bless you and thank you and praise you that your glory may be on display for now and evermore. Amen.